You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey, everybody. Before we get started today, we wanted to let you know this is the last call to sign up for our September class called The S Word, happening this week. This is a one-night class, and it's taking place on September 27th from 8 to 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And it's with Dr. Matthew Krosman, who will explore Paul's uses of sin language. Who doesn't want to talk about sin? Exploring Paul's use of sin language in Romans 5 to 8 and how we might see the effects of sin at play in our world today. Yeah, and when you sign up for the class, you get the live class, a live Q&A session, downloadable class slides, and a link to the class recording in case you can't make it live and or want to watch it at another time. And of course, it's pay what you can until the class ends, and then it costs $25 to download, but you can get all of our classes for just $12 a month by becoming a member of the Society of Normal People. So for more information and to sign up, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash sin. On today's episode, we're talking about the inner life of biblical characters with Barbara Leong Lai. Now, she is a professor of Old Testament and the director for the pastoral and Chinese ministry program at Tyndale Seminary in Toronto, Canada, and she's a sought-after consultant in the area of teaching and appropriating the Old Testament in postmodern times. Yeah, and she's written a book, we'll get into it in the episode, it came out about 12 years ago, it's called Through the Eye Window, The Inner Life of Characters in the Hebrew Bible. Part of this conversation is going to introduce you all to some of the things that are going on in biblical studies, and so there may be concepts and ideas that you might need to Google, and I think that's an important part of this process. But one of the things that she mentions over and over again is the work of uh, Mikhail Bakhtin, or Bakhtin, a Russian literary critic. And so, if you wanted to Google him as you hear it, it's B-A-K-H-T-I-N, um, if you wanted to look him up. And I, I think it's an important concept. It's helpful. It opens up uh, lots of things to think about and talk about in terms of how we read our Bibles. And that's just the groundswell or what's underneath a lot of what we talk about today, although she specifically talks about this inner life of characters in the Hebrew Bible. She has a lot of bigger picture items that I think would be you know helpful for people to, to look into if they want to get nerdy. This is a nerdy episode. All right, let's get into it. So you ask why the eye window it is so important? Because whenever a person speaks in the first person eye voice, give us a window to look into some dimension of his inner thoughts, his feelings, and also emotion. When a person speaks in the first person singular eye, that is the most genuine, the inner eye. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code 
normal people. Barbara, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, you do work in the inner life of characters in the Bible, and that seems like it might be an obvious thing, but just define what you mean by that and why you think it's important, and really what led you to this? What got you interested in this whole topic to begin with? Okay. What I mean by inner life, or other words, you know, internal profiling, or interiority of some Old Testament characters. Actually, it's uh, an advanced step towards the characterization of Hebrew characters. So traditionally, uh, we look at that, we work on the narrative text of the Old Testament, and uh, we do characterization using the idea of whether a certain character is a flat or a round character. So in a way, focusing on the inner life of the characters would be an advanced step towards characterization of the Old Testament and, of course, of the whole Bible. So by means of an advanced step, we focus on things that are normally, um, we can refer to non-cognitive elements of a character. Uh, for example, emotions and feelings. So traditionally, it has a, a long-standing belief that uh, the inner life or the non-cognitive elements of a certain character is not accessible to readers. Or maybe quoting example like uh, the statement that is they are virtually absent, you know, in the Old Testament Bible. So what led me to the study up? or undertaking such a project, uh, which I continue on in my own research and writing. So the book, the Eye Window book, came out 12 years ago. I started the whole project about 15 years ago from now. So back then, there are four major factors that truly motivated. They became the impetus for me to undertaking such a project. The first is back then, is the postmodern notion of the self, selfhood, and also the flowering of the emotion studies in biblical studies, like in the Society of Biblical Literature annual meeting. About the same time, 15 years ago or 12 years ago, the section on emotion and the Bible was launched back then. And then secondly, it's my discomfort over the long-held position that uh, I just mentioned, that the inner life of Old Testament characters are not accessible to us Bible readers, and also uh, they are virtually absent in the Old Testament. And then thirdly, I am a Bactinian reader. I have found that incorporated the Bactinian notion of theories on polyphony and dialogism have proven to be very promising and illuminating to undertake such a project on the inner life of the Old Testament characters. And fourthly, it was my intent to further push the terrain of biblical study, so interdisciplinary or integrated methodology. In my case, is to hammer our brand new integrated methodology. It's very much in demand in the field of biblical studies. So one of the things that I think is is important is 
this idea, even the book itself talks about the eye window. And so maybe before we jump into Bakhtin and these ideas that can really take us deep, maybe we can talk for a minute about this eye window. And, and so we're talking about people's emotions. Can we access the characters in the Hebrew Bible's emotions and feelings? And it, you talk about we can access them through this eye window. So can you talk more about what is that and why is that important as a method that helped to overturn this long-term position within biblical studies that the inner self isn't accessible? You can look at it as a limit. I work with eye text in the Old Testament only by means of eye passages. Are those passages where the characters or the character speaks in the first person I voice, first person I voice. So that is why, you know, within the cover in my book are the 15 identifiable I passages from the book of Isaiah and also the second half of the book of Daniel from chapter 7 to 12. Basically, like the character Daniel, he speaks in the first person I emphatic I voice. Actually, it's I Daniel in those chapters. And also I have identified three chapters that we can discern as God's first person I text in Isaiah chapter 5, Hosea 11, and also Jeremiah chapter 8. Those are all in the prophetic literature. And Daniel, of course, is apocalyptic. So you ask why the I window it is so important? Because whenever a a person speaks in the first person I voice, give us a window to look into some dimension of his inner thoughts, his feelings, and also emotion. So, for example, Genesis chapter 17 and 18, those are the narrative texts. So the narrator is talking about some of the acts of Abraham and also Sarah. But in Genesis 17, 17, the narrator zoomed in to some of the inner thoughts of Abraham. In that verse, Abraham speaks in a first-person I voice. It says, Abraham fell face down. He laughed and he said to himself, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? So in his inner thought, he said to himself, laughed and said to himself. So in the first-person singular I. And then the next chapter. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. So verse 12, it says, So Sarah laughed to herself, and she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? So both in the I voice, so in a narrative text, the narrator in the third person telling about Abraham and also Sarah. But with this two I window, when they said to himself, when Sarah thought in her own, own heart, and then we have an eye window, knowing the status of their faith upon the first time upon God appeared to them through the angels and also announced the promise of descendant to both Abraham and Sarah. So the eye window, the inner thought is so important. Uh, so in a way, reading those verses in Genesis 17 and 18, if we zoom in, focus on the first person I in their thought, in the thought, and what they said to himself, uh, saying to himself in the thought, creating a dialogue between Abraham himself and also his inner self. So we have a window to look into the status of their faith. 
upon the receipt of God's promise of descendants at that time. So I see the eye window. When a person thinks or in a, when a person speaks in the first person singular eye, that is the most genuine, the inner eye. I think this is a little bit of a bridge for us to talk about Bakhtin and this reading strategy, but I want to maybe mention something that you said, and that's the word dialogue. Because when we talk about the eye window or speaking to ourselves, we don't think about that as a dialogue. But I think I want to bring out what you said, which is when we have I statements, so when, when Abraham's saying I, this, or Daniel, Isaiah, Hosea are talking about talking to themselves, that is a dialogue. And I think we can all relate to that idea that it's the self and the inner self. When we're talking to ourselves, we're talking to someone, and that is a dialogue. And why is that important to think about or to acknowledge when we're reading the biblical text, especially in these passages? This is a very good question. When I make adaptation, you know, my adaptation of the Bakhtin theories on dialogism and also polyphonic discourse is firmly based on what has been established in social sciences and also humanities. So in terms of monologue and dialogue, there are two very famous names like Aluso Skunko and also Sternberg. In humanities, also in, uh, in biblical study, it is a firmly established theory that we should not uh, make any distinction between dialogues and monologues. In a way, they are pockets of monologue within dialogue, and they are imaginary dialogues within monologue. So in a way, we can collapse the difference between dialogue and monologue. Going back to the bacteriary theory, on dialogic. So every utterance, every inner thought, or if we say something to ourselves, so in, in a way we are breaking ourselves into two halves to create a space for us to dialogue. So every utterance to Bakhtin is a reply to or a response to something already said, already there. So in a way, if we are monologuing, so in terms of dilemmic, we are breaking into two halves and then we create a space for us to dialogue with ourselves. But if we are doing dialogic, you know, uh, if we are making dialogue with a text, with our reader response, then we are in a way dialoguing with the text and also with something already been said, something already there. So in a way, it's more complex. It's quite sophisticated. But in real life situation, we are of a two-car family. When I'm driving, maybe after school or driving here and there, I do monologue all times. I am monologuing. But during my monologue, in the thoughts, in essence, I'm creating a space for my inner self and myself, my thoughts to create a very safe space to dialogue. And then many times it's very therapeutic. But the, in the text that we are dealing with, those are I voice, like Daniel his, in his I voice. So giving Daniel himself an avenue to voice out his dilemma where he is uh, functioning as an aspiring sage during the daytime and also at night at the same time. He lay ill for several days. He couldn't sleep. He couldn't eat. Uh, becoming like becoming a dysfunctional seer. So that kind of thing is only through the eye window 
whenever Daniel is saying, like, I, Daniel, sharing on the surface his visionary experience, but in essence, he's letting out his emotion, the real state of his inner self. What I hear you talking about is the idea of dialogue, and we think about that as two people, but within you know literary criticism and other uh, social sciences and humanities, when they, we, we've been able to sort of break down this binary of either a monologue or a dialogue, where when we're talking about a monologue, there's a sense in which every monologue is a dialogue. Uh, an example that comes to mind when you said that was Hamlet, whenever he's saying to be or not to be. It's sort of like he's wrestling with himself. There are two players here. There is himself and himself, and he's trying to figure it out. And I think we can all relate to that when we're trying to make a decision. There's like a part of us that agrees, a part of us that disagrees. And in that way, a monologue, to say that out loud, is a dialogue and vice versa, that when we're having a conversation with somebody, in some sense, we're also just having a monologue. We're also sort of processing for ourselves out loud. And so there's this, these advances where we realize there's not really a clear line between a monologue and a dialogue. And that opens up a lot of windows and possibilities now when we're trying to figure out the inner life of characters in the Bible. Is that a fair a summary? Yes. Okay, good. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose and it's just my throat hurts and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescriptive strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning. residential online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to 
upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. When you say something like, you know, Daniel's eye and getting to know Daniel's interiority, so to speak, I mean, I assume that what you mean by that is we're getting to the author's characterization of Daniel and not so much Daniel himself as a person. Yes, yeah, right. Yeah. Yes. And also it's more on the being of Daniel, not his ability to interpret dreams and visions, but the being. Like if we are talking about like prophetic books like Isaiah, on the one hand, you talk about the characterization of Isaiah. The best, like before, the best we can advance would be so-called the prophetic consciousness. The degree of consciousness that they are God's mouthpiece, no, they are the messenger of God. But if I am able to identify the 15 I passages in the book of Isaiah, so we can give more depth to the answer, what manner of men are the prophets? Like in Isaiah, the whole spectrum, my range of emotion could be uncovered through those 15 I passages. Love, intimacy, lament, being constrained by God, doubt and despair, and then so on. So I think in a way, it is an advancement towards uh, if we focus on the eye window as a port of entry, not only a point of entry, as a port of entry to the characterization of Old Testament characters, which is not accessible to us purely. At best, we can speak of prophetic consciousness. We focus more on the corporate than on the individual, right? But now we can focus on the individual Isaiah, individual Jeremiah, if we focus on the so-called confession of Jeremiah. And also we can focus on of the sage Daniel. So it is previously, we won't dare, because without the eye window, we won't dare, we don't have enough biblical material for us to go into the area of investigation. So I think the eye window is, uh, to me, it opens up highway and also byway into the characterization of Old Testament characters. Yeah, and, and the other question, this goes back to something that you said earlier. Again, this is for clarification and to flesh things out a bit. Your book came out years ago, and part of a movement in the Society of Biblical Literature, which is the academic meetings that we have yearly, a movement away from, well, the opposite of what you're saying, that we can't really know the interiority of anything. It's not really... They're a, virtually a, absent, yeah. Yeah, virtually absent. That reminded me of something in my own graduate training, which I think is exactly what you're probably reacting against, is something like Eric Auerbach wrote an article in the 1950s, Odysseus's Scar. Mm-hmm. And the point was that, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey go into a lot of interiority, but the biblical text tends not to. Yes. And I, I forget the example that he uses, but this even comes up very practically in my classes. And I'm asking the question, so maybe I can do a better job teaching. But you know, my students will, will be looking at the binding of Isaac, the Akedah, right, in Genesis 22. And they'll say, what was Abraham feeling when he was going up the mountain with Isaac? Mm-hmm. And I say, I haven't the slightest idea what he was feeling, because the text isn't interested in telling us those things. So... I wonder if there is a both and here, that there is 
a lot less interiority that we're, we're dealing with than in some other texts, but there's also overlooked interiority, like Isaiah, Daniel, and you're mentioning Hosea, Jeremiah, and places like that. Yes, we focus on the corporate, even if we have a lot of the period century, and we focus a lot of our efforts on the prophetic consciousness, but we always focus on the corporate and undermine the individual, right, or individuality like in the case of Isaiah and then and Jeremiah and so on. But that the confession of Jeremiah, we have a, the host of research are done on the book of Jeremiah, but we never focus on Isaiah. How about Jonah, Jonah and how about Habakkuk? They are eye text, eye passages in those uh, passages. I am now completing um, a commentary on Ecclesiastes and thank you. I also consulted your book. Uh, for uh, Sheffield Phoenix Press. So for Ecclesiastes, the emotion, the inner life of the Kohalath is explosive. We Basically, Ecclesiastes is a polyphony, a multi-voice text, and also it is uh, full of a lot of emotion. A new approach of reading strategy, I also look at it as a memoir because you need something very heavily loaded emotive stuff in the book of Ecclesiastes. So in a way, when we look at the book of Ecclesiastes, previously, in tons of commentaries, they focus more on the coherence and then so on. We never put any real focus on the, it is a polyphony, it's a multi-voice. I identify, including the voice of the reader, the interpretive voice of the reader. There are at least five voices in a book of Ecclesiastes. So the Bactinian theory of polyphony and also dialogism comes in at this point. So if we look at it as, you know, the five, including the reader's own interpretive voice here. So the five voices and dialoguing vibrantly. And that is the way that we can see what is the truth, the dialogic truth. What is the message of the book of uh, Ecclesiastes? I think we miss a lot, you know, we, if we only focus on the traditional way of finding some coherency from the 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes. And do you feel also that, you know, the Psalter is am- very amenable to your approach? Yes, I think so. Because of all the I psalms and the inner anguish of the psalmist. Yes, right. Yeah. Yes, okay. right. I think that's a great segue, if we can. You, you know, you've mentioned this Bakhtinian polyphony dialogism underneath it. I, I think this is going to get kind of a little nerdy and a little heady for folks, but I think it's really important. You know, you mentioned coherence and how within biblical studies scholars, not just in biblical studies and not just scholars, I would say kind of the Western world over the last 500 years or so has privileged coherence over diversity and multiplicity. So can you just give us a baseline understanding or definition in, you know, a couple of minutes on what you mean and what what Bakhtin would mean by polyphony and and dialogism? Okay. Even though I'm a Bakhtin reader, but Bakhtin, he has never written anything of the Bible. Maybe a few sentences about the book of Job, to the best of my understanding. The Bakhtinian theories and ideas are so dense, okay? I could never identify myself as a, even though I am a Bakhtin reader or I'm an expert of the 
official theorist, literary theorist. The best I can do is my methodology. On the one hand, is tailor made, but is strongly based on what has been established in social sciences, such as, for example, uh, emotions are the markers of the construction of the self, right? And also something that is as well established in humanities, like uh, what we have learned from Aduso Skunko and Sternberg uh, about the monologue and dialogue. What I have borrowed or adopted, my making adaptation of the Bactinian theories are on dialogism and also polyphony or polyphonic discourse. So to the best of my understanding, it is hard for me to give a definition of what is the Bactinian theory on dialogism or polyphony, uh, polyphonic discourse. But what I can say is I adapted to the dynamics, the process, or the phenomenon, whenever there is a, if this is a polyphonic text, so we are dealing with polyphonic discourse. Like in Isaiah chapter 21, an oracle towards the end, an oracle uh, about Duma, in the silent question and answer, it is a dialogue, but there are several levels of this dialogue. So in other words, when we look at the polyphonic discourse within Isaiah 21, there is only a few verses. So someone from C asking Isaiah the watchman, what is of the night? What of the night? And in answer, morning will come, but there is also the night and then so on. It is a silent question and answer. So to apply the Bactinian theory on polyphonic discourse here, so with a silent question and answer, and then also within Isaiah, he himself, you know, in this inner thought, all putting together, only through this dialogue, the dynamic of this dialogue, we see that the kind of despair, the kind of helplessness, that kind of feeling felt within the prophet himself, to the extent he used the third person projection of his first person view. He is projecting himself as the watchman, as a third person watchman, being asked a question. It is a very silent question and answer. So unable to give a definition of the Bactinian theory of polyphonic discourse of dialogism in form of statements. But what I have adopted, the Bactinian way of um, reading the biblical text, is the dilemma of this polyphonic discourse and also the dialogism. It's the dilemma, it's the phenomenon leading to the way when I'm working on God's, God's eye voice um, from the three chosen texts. So basically, in that it is a leading to, because of this dialogic dilemma, leading to the unfinalized, that is, uh, of course, the Bactin's books are trans, uh, translation, written first in Russian. So it's the dialogic, unfinalized uh, dialogic. On the one hand, it's a dialogic truth. The truth or the message of a passage are through the dialogic interaction within the text and also the text within the text and also the reader. So at the same time, when I'm constructing the inner life of Isaiah, 
I am also constructing my own inner life. That is the kind of impact, particularly when we hear God's eye voice. So in a way, we call the dialogic truth through this dialogue within the text and also between the text and the reader. We are arriving at so-called the truth. Maybe we shouldn't use a truth of the message. And also this truth is unfinalized because if we come up with any outcome, any idea, any message, you know, from this kind of reading, it is still unfinalized. I'm not talking about John 3.16, you know, I'm talking about the whole passage. In a way, the unfined or unfinalizability of certain texts. So keep on working, keep on dialoguing with the text back and forth. That is also called the hermeneutical cycle from Thiselton. The hermeneutical cycle, going back and forth, back and forth, cross and reaching. So in a way, could never exalt, even though they are advancement, you know, go on advancement, we identify more God's eye voice passages, but could never exhaust the meaning significance of any text to the reader. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways. And that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy. And I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BNP today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BNP. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes, but we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Whenever we're talking about things like 
polyphony in dialogism, it, it, in some ways it resists definition because that's kind of part of the the process. So I'm going to maybe try to, to summarize a little bit and maybe integrate some of what I you know have learned of, of Bakhtin over the years. But I think it's important because at, at root of this, you know, what, what I think is exciting about this approach of looking at the I language when we read it in our Bibles, to see it as an invitation to join in the meaning-making of the text, which is, I think, important. And, and you've mentioned reader response or the idea, we, you know, we had uh, David Lambert, who I think is at, at uh, North Carolina Chapel Hill, who talked about the community reading the text is actually a part of the process of meaning-making of the text. And I think that's a that's a really important part. And so, again, I think one of the reasons that this is hard to talk about is because it is a paradigm shift from four or 500 years of reading the Bible as, you know, the opposite of polyphonic is uniphonic. The idea that one voice, there's one, or, you know, we often talk about univocal or, or univocal, so that there's this one voice and all scholarship is trying to do is find the one meaning that is universal and it is abstract and it is once for all time. Once we know it, we don't need to do any more work. It is done. It's sort of like two plus two equals four, done. We just close that book and we move on. But the idea of human language and meaning and significance is so diverse and it's so much more malleable than that. And so this idea of of polyphony is that in order to come at the truth, we need as many voices as possible. We need as many interpretations as we can get. We need a a diversity of consciousness and, you know, the multiple consciousnesses and many different perspectives are important when we're trying to grasp at this truth. And so, that's kind of part of this process of of polyphony is, is many voices help us to understand the truth. And, you know, we talk about, on the podcast here, we talk quite a bit about all theology has an adjective. And what this is, is taking it the next step to say, we need as many adjectives as we can get to fully understand the truth, because the truth is actually much bigger than we can imagine. And so, we need, you know, African-American communities, Asian-American communities, Eastern communities, Western communities, Northern communities. We need as many communities, because the truth is is way more diverse than we originally imagined, which again, I think you mentioned this at the very beginning, is this, you know, it's more of a postmodern, it's coming out of this modernistic understanding that we have this once for all time, universally valid understanding of truth. Um, And so, when you talk about unfinalized, for me, that's really exciting of saying, we're never finished with it. There are unending opportunities to use this text for good and for love and for grace and for forgiveness and for all these things. Once we understand that it's useful for those things and not just for, we close the book, it's this abstract idea of truth and we can close it and we're done with it. So, my sermon is done, but is, is, that, <laughs> is that a good summary? Yeah, very good summary. I just want to um, maybe add on to one thing. There are two dimensions of the polyphony. So, we need a polyphony of interpretive voices, right? You mentioned about Asian voices and also so-called marginalized you know, voices and African voices and, and so on. But um, I think the, um, since I think Francis Landy and then so on, recent years, we focus a lot on the polyphony of the biblical text. Actually, 
in a lot of uh, texts that I study and maybe work on and also later on publish, there are many biblical texts that are multi-voiced, which is previously we ignore you know, that the multi-voice. Besides the book of Ecclesiastes, for example, like um, Daniel chapter 3. So Daniel chapter 3, Daniel was not even here. What is the message of Daniel chapter 3? We is, is a polyphony. It's very loud, that particular chapter. You know, different kinds of musical instrument, the horror saying, you know, bow down and worship, and then bow down and worship. And also the voice of the king, the voice of the three friends, and then so on. So a lot of the biblical text in itself is polyphony. So if we look at the different voices using the, this dynamic of back pain, you know, so, so to speak, dialoguing together. So we can ask at the end, when we come out of that chapter, with that level of engagement, identify several, you know, the multi-voice included in the text. Then at the end of, you know, of the reading, we ask, what is the central message about the text? I think with the polyphony, that kind of polyphonic dynamic, the message of that chapter is who is the sovereign? Who is the sovereign? Because that is all the voices are towards, you know, whether the sovereign is God or because end up with uh, Daniel's three friends that are dumping into the furnace at the end of the chapter. So who is the sovereign? We can get the answer. The Lord is the sovereign. God is the sovereign and not Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, so multi-voice, multi-interpretive voice is very much in demand. I think in a few of biblical study in the past 10 years or so, we are doing pretty good in terms of the inclusiveness of different interpretive voices. But we are not doing too good in terms of identifying the multi-voice text included in the Old Testament. Actually, I think that is a window towards finding a meaning, the meaning significance or the message of any given text. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad that you you clarify that because you know, kind of my little rant went more toward our readers. You know, as we read the text, infusing that, but we find it in the text itself, and so I think that's what you're also getting at is if we just read closely, we see this many voices polyphony within the text themselves. If we just look, we see the many voices already there, and we just need to to recognize that. And there's always one one more voice, the interpretive voice of the reader. If we are able to arrive at that level of self-engagement. Yes. Well, you know, Barbara, as we're we're coming really to the close of our time here, but I, I have one final question to ask, and I'm I'm thinking of again our listeners for whom this is very new. This is a new uh, topic for many people, and it's also it can be a bit complex, and there are philosophical elements to this, and and you mentioned Bakhtin a lot, and he's a very important voice in this. But do you have any practical advice for interested people? and how to understand this method a little bit better. Feel free to recommend your own book. So I have written a book, you know, 12 years ago, right, on the eye window. And subsequently, I published quite a few PV-view journals using maybe polyphony and also the idea of the eye window. I want to encourage the audience, be self-engaged, because meaning is context-bound, but context is boundless. 
where I'm coming from, you know, my ethnicity and then so on, my training and then so on. We are all different. So context is a bandus. But in my teaching, even though at this age, you know, we cannot set a boundary to the reader perspective, but I would like to use uh, the threefold reader perspective. As a reader, you have to be Bible-believing, God-fearing, always with a divine fear that you and I may not be able to capture or to interpret the Word of God correctly, and also faith-seeking understanding. If you and I acquire these three kinds of reader uh, perspective and we self-engaging, you know, get into the text to find, to dig out the meaning significance. So the whole truth is boundless, is open up for us so we can still find the meaning significance of any given text in the Old Testament. In a way, my book, the Eye Window book, the results that I can offer, they are only of brick quality. And what I'm hoping is that it may generate something that are of jade extravagance. You know, that is my uh, my ultimate hope after the book. Well, thank you so much, uh, Barbara, for jumping on with us. Your your passion for this is palpable, and I think that's that's really important as we look toward the future. I think it it takes not just articulation, but also passion as we as we find new ways to engage uh, the biblical text. So, thank you again for for jumping on. We really appreciate it. Thank you again for your invitation and the opportunity to learn from both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks to everyone who supports the show. If you want to support what we do, there are three ways you can do it. One, if you just want to give a little money, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash give. And if you want to support us and want a community, classes, and other great resources, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash join. And lastly, it always goes a long way if you just wanted to rate the podcast, leave a review, and tell others about our show. In addition, you can let us know what you thought about the episode by emailing us at info at thebiblefornormalpeople.com. You've just made it through another episode of The Bible for Normal People. Don't forget, you can also catch our other show, Faith for Normal People, in the same feed wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was brought to you by The Bible for Normal People team. Brittany Prescott, Stephen Henning, Wesley Duckworth, Savannah Locke, Tessa Stoltz, Danny Wong, Natalie Wyand, Jessica Shaw, and Lauren O'Connell.